Well, good morning, Calvary family. It's good to see you. Uh, you know, before I came to Calvary for a lot of the years on the mission field, I was teaching in a seminary, so I was kind of in an academic setting. And, you know, sometimes you kind of miss giving quizzes and exams. So I'm going to give you one this morning. Okay, because I know you always read the bulletin and you always pay attention to the announcements. Okay, so here, here, here's the quiz. It's a two-question quiz. When is our Christmas Eve morning service? What time? Nine o'clock. All right, A plus. And what time is our candlelight service? Four o'clock. All right, very good. Yeah. So, all right. Well, good. I got that out of my system now, and the you know the grading's really easy. So, um, we're looking forward to those services together. Well, I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah forty-five, and as you're turning there, I want to just take a moment to acknowledge the dilemma of the unbeliever. You know, we often refer to unbelievers as being lost, and they truly are. And one of the definitional components of being lost is that you don't know which way to go. You don't know the way home. And I think that we need to recognize the true dilemma the unbeliever has. After all, they look around and they say, there's so many religions. And within each of those religions, there's so many variations of each of those religions. And then they look around at all the philosophies and the ideologies and then the mixing and matching and they think, boy, there's so many options. How do I know which road to choose? With so many religions and ideologies in the world, how can someone know which one is true? This is a very legitimate question. And one of the key answers to that question is found in the section of Isaiah that we've been studying Repeatedly in chapters 40 through 50, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, says that he is the only true God. And of course, Jesus says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so repeatedly, God's claim is that he is the only true God, the only Savior, the only way. And God repeatedly says <clears throat> that there is an unmistakable and clear way that a person can know that he is the true God and that all the other gods of all the other religions are false. What is that clear way? What's the clear proof? Well, the proof that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the triune God of the Bible is true and all others are fake is that he and only he knows the future and has revealed it to his prophets and apostles in such a way that it can be verified. Only he can do that. Only the Bible has prophecy written where we can ascertain it was written before the events and then to have those events fulfilled. Christmas is a great time to remind people about this because there's so many details about the life of Christ which are revealed in the Old Testament hundreds of years before Christ came that could not possibly be anything other than God revealing the future to the Old Testament prophets. Yahweh knows the future. He reveals it to his prophets and apostles and that is proof that he is the true God. By the way, this is a major theme which runs throughout this whole section. Look back with me, if you will, at chapter 41, verses 21 through 26. <clears throat> Isaiah 41, 21 through 26. Present your case, Yahweh says. So all the other claims, all the other truth claims, all the other religions, all the other, the cults and all of that, God says to them, present your case. Let's bring forth the evidence. Present your case, Yahweh says. Bring forth your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. And as for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. God says, bring forth the evidence. Who can declare what's going to take place? Who 
can say what hasn't happened yet accurately. And then he says, in fact, all these false gods, let them do anything, anything good or evil, just show that they can do something. He says, no, you are of no account. Your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Look over at chapter 42, verses 8 through 9. I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. See, I'm the one who knows the future, God says. Chapter 43, verses 8 through 13. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, it's true. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I, even I, am Yahweh and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he. Then there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? So I'm the eternal one. I am the sovereign one. Chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. By the way, clear reference to the Trinity because the name Yahweh is used twice in reference to the two two of the persons of the Trinity, to the Father and the Son. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Right? If, if there's some other God, then let them declare the future the way I declare the future, Yahweh says. Verse 8, do not tremble, do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. So how can someone know who the true God is? Well, the answer is find the only one who can actually predict the future and has done so in verifiable ways. Find the one who knows the future and you have found the true and living God. One of the many compelling truths, uh, proofs of the truth of the Christian faith is the fact that there are so many prophecies that we can verify were written long before the events and came true as they were predicted. And one of the most amazing of those fulfilled prophecies is right here in our passage for this morning in Isaiah chapter, at the end of chapter 44 and the beginning of chapter 45. So let's begin picking up a little bit of the context in Isaiah 44, verse 24. We'll read through chapter 45, verse 7. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness. Right? So there are, there are you know, boasters, right, who think through omens, through all these different tricks, tarot cards, and all these things, they can predict the future. God causes all of that to fail. He says he makes fools out of diviners. Those are ones that think they can predict the future through all of these black magic arts. He makes fools out of them. Causes wise men to draw back, turns their knowledge into foolishness. But notice what God does in regard to the truth. Verse 26, but he confirms the word of his servant and performs the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. 
It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I, Yahweh, do all these things. This is amazing, truly amazing, and I'll explain to you why. The book of Isaiah is written in 700 B.C. And we know from historical sources when Cyrus was born, and he was born in 600 B.C. 100 years after he is named by name in the book of Isaiah. 100 years before he was even born, Cyrus is predicted by name. And twice the text says that God has called him by name a century before he's even born. But not only is his name predicted, but his victories over many nations are predicted in chapter 45, verse 1, which says that he will subdue nations before him. But go back to chapter 44, verse 27 which has this very astounding statement. God is speaking and says, it is I who says to the, depth, to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. This is astounding because we know from other historical sources how Cyrus conquered the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon had these massive walls that everyone in the ancient world thought could never be breached, never be crossed, never be defeated. Well, Cyrus brought a bunch of nerds with him in his army, and they figured out a way to divert the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River ran under the walls, providing endless water to the city so a siege would never work. They could never starve Babylon into submission because they had an endless supply of water. Cyrus's engineers divert the Euphrates River, and his army literally walked into the city on the dry riverbed. This is absolutely amazing because this is predicted in the book of Isaiah over a century before it occurs. Then, in 539 B.C., Cyrus issues a decree. And this decree allows the Jewish exiles to return from their captivity in Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And this is predicted in chapter 44, verse 26, chapter 44, verse 28, and in chapter 45, verse 13. And these texts are written 160 years before the edict is given. By the way, the prediction that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the temple's foundations will be relayed is given before the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile even occurs. Isaiah is predicting how they will be released from a captivity that they haven't even entered yet. This is absolutely astounding and all of these events are, are incredibly well confirmed and attested in history. None of the other so-called gods of any other religion has proven the fulfillment of predictive prophecy as has Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Only he can do this because he alone is God and he alone is the sovereign Lord of history. And that is our theme for this morning. God is the sovereign Lord of history. Look again back at chapter 44, verses 6 through 8. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? You want to say that someone is like the God of the Bible? Well, here's the challenge. Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. 
from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. No one else has done that. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. He and he alone is the sovereign Lord of history. And he has graciously given us over and over again a book written in 700 BC which accurately predicts events of history which we can verify from other sources that happened in 600 BC and in 539 BC. And that's only the beginning because there are other prophecies in other places. We know the date of writing of the book. We know the events and when they were fulfilled. Christmas is a wonderful time to be reminded of that because so many of the events of the birth of Christ were predicted long before they occurred. So we should have wonder and awe in our hearts. How can someone know which way to go in all of the competing truth claims? Look to the one who knows the future, who declares the end from the beginning. Look to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we should have wonder and awe in our hearts as we realize we just read a writing that is 2,700 years old that accurately predicted events which we know from archaeological history so well. We should have awe in our hearts about that. But we, I want to turn our attention now to something which I think is even more astounding. When Isaiah prophesies that Cyrus will deliver the people of Israel from their future captivity in Babylon, as that prophecy is given, several terms are used which are used elsewhere in the book of Isaiah in other prophecies speaking about a greater deliverer. So as the prophecy about Cyrus delivering the people of Israel from Babylonian captivity is given, the same words and terms are used that are used in other prophecies in the book to describe a greater deliverer who is coming. For example, in chapter 44, verse 28, God calls Cyrus, quote, my shepherd. And that, of course, brings to our mind what Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. There's a foreshadowing from the lesser deliverer to the greater deliverer. In chapter 45, verse 1, God calls Cyrus, quote, my anointed. This is the same term that is transliterated Messiah, which is used elsewhere in prophecies about the greater deliverer to come. And there's a number of other allusions and poetic parallels between the prophecies of Cyrus and the prophecies of the coming Messiah. The lesser deliverer foreshadows the coming of the greater deliverer. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, the readers are being reminded of two great events, one in the past and one which is for them at the time of writing still future. In the past, they had their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And that foreshadows the greater deliverance that Christ will bring. But then now there's a second example, the release from Babylonian captivity, and that too will foreshadow the greater deliverance that the Messiah will bring. So in this passage, there's foreshadowing between Cyrus, the lesser deliverer, and Jesus, the greater deliverer. And I want to just point them out to you. There are five of them. First of all, Cyrus foreshadows Christ as the restorer of Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 44, it says twice that the walls or that Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt. And in chapter 45, verse 13, it says, I have aroused him, that is Cyrus, in righteousness, and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says Yahweh of so Cyrus, in his decree, which enables the people to go back to the promised land and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, that foreshadows Christ, who will be, in the end times, the restorer of Jerusalem. Secondly, Cyrus foreshadows Christ as the good shepherd. At the end of chapter 44, verse 28, it says, It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. This is foreshadows Christ coming as a shepherd to gather the flock of God. 
Jesus is the good shepherd and he calls out to the four corners of the earth and his sheep hear his voice. They know him and they follow him. Third, Cyrus foreshadows Christ as the messianic king. Chapter 45, verse 1, thus says Yahweh to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand. And again here, the Hebrew uh, term is Mashiach or Messiah, or Messiah. And the word means one anointed, an anointed one. Someone anointed for some special service to God. And in the Old Testament, this term is used fairly frequently for prophets of God, for priests of God, and for kings who do God's will. And those three offices, those three anointed offices, the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king, are said to be foreshadows of the work of Christ and the offices of Christ, who the New Testament says is prophet and priest and king. And so Cyrus, along with the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament priests, foreshadows the coming greater deliverer, the one who will be both prophet and priest and king. Fourth, Cyrus foreshadows Christ as the conqueror of nations. In chapter 45, it says that God was going to subdue nations before Cyrus, that doors would be opened before him and he would shatter the iron bars that would stand in his way. Nothing, we know historically, when Cyrus arose, all of these supposed world superpowers just crumbled before him in a way which shocked the ancient world. And the unstoppable nature of Cyrus's rise and his advance foreshadows what Christ will do in the end times when all the nations of the world will be gathered to attack Jerusalem and Christ will come with the armies of heaven and will conquer the nations. In the book of Revelation, Christ is referred to as the one who when he opens a door, no one can shut it. And when he shuts the door, no one can open it. Very similar language to Isaiah 45, verse 1, when it says to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. So Cyrus foreshadows Christ as the conqueror of nations. And then fifth and lastly, Cyrus foreshadows Christ saving us by grace. Look at again at chapter 45, verse 13. I have aroused him in righteousness and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward. The reason the edict that Cyrus issues in 539 BC shocked the ancient world is because he let the captives go free without payment or reward. No one had ever done that before. But this foreshadows what the greater deliverer will do as he rescues us and frees us from sin with no payment on our part, saving us by grace alone. If it is amazing that God could deliver his people from the Babylonian captivity through Cyrus, it is even more amazing that he could deliver us from our captivity to sin through Christ. Cyrus is the lesser deliverer who foreshadows the greater deliverer. And so when Israel, you know, over a century and a half after this was written, was indeed delivered from the Babylonian captivity by Cyrus, it was supposed to point their hearts forward to the coming of the greater deliverer. It should be a powerful reminder of what is promised about the work of Christ. They had in their past the exodus to, to point them towards the coming salvation. They have now the release from the Babylonian captivity to point them, all pointing to the finished and final work of Christ. Cyrus foreshadows Christ saving us by grace. Well, so we've kind of now studied this section uh, in this chapter which focuses on Cyrus, and he's mentioned in some other places as well. But I want to move on now to draw a few spiritual lessons from the overall theme of, of this chapter. The overall theme of this chapter is that God is the sovereign one over all of human history. He is absolutely sovereign. He is the sovereign Lord of history. And I want to draw some 
lessons. How should we respond to that truth? How should we respond to that fact, that reality? It is a fact that God is sovereign. But how should our hearts respond to that unchangeable and undeniable reality? You know, a lot of people respond to the reality of the sovereignty of God by, you know, all sorts of these philosophical questions. Well, if God's sovereign, does that mean that we really have free will? And they get all philosophical. I want to tell you how your heart should respond to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And I want to share it with you from this chapter. Number one, we should respond to God's sovereignty by rejoicing, evangelizing, walking in holiness, and worshiping. Look at chapter 45 and verse 8. Remember, in verse 7, God, has said that God says he's the one who forms light, creates darkness, causes well-being, creates calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things, right? He is the sovereign Lord of history. So how do we respond to that truth? Verse 8. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, Yahweh, have created it. We should respond to the reality of God's sovereignty by rejoicing, by sharing the good news, by walking in righteousness, and by worship. I want you to notice the language of rejoicing at the beginning of verse 8. Drip down, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds pour down righteousness. This is the language of rejoicing. And I always feel like I have to explain this to modern people. You know, you get your food from Walmart. I understand that, right? So it's like you wake up in the morning and it's rainy and you're like, oh, bummer, because I wanted to go to the store to get my food and now it's raining. And the rain is kind of like this barrier inconvenience. But, you know, in case you have never set foot on a farm in your life, rain is what actually is necessary for there to be food, right? And so for most humans throughout most history, the coming of rain was a time of great rejoicing. People would have a party when it would rain because that meant they were going to survive, that meant they were going to have something to eat. So rain language, right? We tend to think of, oh, it's a rainy day. That's like, that's a drag. No, when the heavens drip down and when the clouds pour down, this is party time. This is rejoicing time. This is the language of rejoicing. The fact that God is sovereign over history should cause the entire creation to burst forth in rejoicing as people do when there is a life-giving downpour of rain. Next, I want you to notice the call to evangelism that's in verse 8. It says, let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit. The fact that God is sovereign means that when Jesus tells us that the fields are white unto harvest and so we should go labor in his harvest fields because he, the Lord of the harvest, will bring in the harvest, his sovereignty should compel us to go with confidence knowing that he will bring in that harvest of souls which he has determined to save. Next, I want you to notice that along with the evangelistic fruit, righteousness should also spring up. It says, let salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. You see, personal holiness should be the fruit that comes from the new life we have received in Christ. Along with salvation springing forth, righteousness should spring up with it. Salvation and righteousness go together. Finally, notice who should get the glory. At the end of verse 8, God says, I, Yahweh, have created it. Who did it? It was him. So God's sovereignty should cause us to worship, knowing that as Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, all things are from him and through him and therefore to him. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the first response to God's sovereignty should be rejoicing, sharing the good news of salvation, walking in holiness and 
worshiping the Lord. I want to talk pretty extensively about the second response. We should respond to God's sovereignty by humble acceptance of his will, of his providence in our life. We should respond to God's sovereignty by humble acceptance of his will. Look at chapter 45, beginning in verse 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their hosts. I have aroused him in righteousness and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city, will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says Yahweh of hosts. Thus says Yahweh, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you and they will make supplication to you saying, surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. Truly you are God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Don't quarrel with your maker. Instead, the command is given in verse 11. You shall commit to me the work of my hands. We should respond to God's sovereignty by humble acceptance of his will. Verse 9 begins with a very clear warning. Don't quarrel with your maker. Don't do it. Don't quarrel with your maker. And then two very pointed illustrations are given about this warning. The illustration of the potter and the illustration of the parent. One warning, don't quarrel with your maker. Two illustrations, the potter and the parent. Quarreling with your maker, first of all, is like a pot quarreling with the potter. And in the example given, the clay says to the potter, what are you doing? And he has no hands. What, what, what's this referring to? So first of all, the clay says to the potter, what are you doing? In other words, the thing which is being made is questioning the intentions of the maker. This is a quarrelsome question which casts aspersions on God's character by questioning his intentions. The clay is saying to the potter, what are you doing? What are you doing with me? Potter is shaping this vessel, and the vessel's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are your intentions? This is casting aspersions on God's character. Then the next thing the pot says to the potter is, you don't have any hands. You don't have any hands. This quarrelsome question casts aspersions on God's competence by questioning his abilities. You can't shape and mold me correctly. You don't even have hands to shape and mold me. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability to fulfill the purpose you have for me. So in this example, the clay, in a quarrelsome way, questions the potter, first of all, by casting aspersions on his character and then casting aspersions on his competence by questioning his intentions and then questioning his abilities. And this is ridiculous. It is ridiculous and wrong for a created being to question the character of God, for he is holy, nor is it proper to question the competence of God because he is almighty. God is all-wise and all-powerful, so both his intentions and his ability to carry out those intentions are unquestionable. Don't be a pot that questions the character or competence of God your potter. The second illustration is that of a child challenging his parents. Notice what the child says to his mother and father. Verse 9, woe to him who says to the father, what are you begetting? To the mother, to what are you giving birth? 
few years ago, a 27-year-old man in Asia sued his parents for bringing him into the world without his permission. Yeah, real thing. This man called himself an antinatalist. What is antinatalism? It's the belief that bringing children into the world is inherently immoral because children will experience suffering. In an interview, this man said, quote, there's no point to humanity. So many people are suffering. If humanity goes extinct, earth and the animals will be happier. They'll certainly be better off and also no human will then suffer. Human existence is totally pointless. He's saying to his father and mother, he says, saying to the father, what are you beginning? To his mother, what are you bringing forth? And he's most importantly saying to God, you created humanity and it's pointless. No point at all. This is obviously incredibly dishonoring to parents, but it's also dishonoring to God. And it's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. I, as I read that interview, I'm like, I'm like is, was this guy quoting Isaiah 45, <laughs> verse 9, or verse 10? It is ridiculous and wrong to quarrel with God about when he made you, where he made you, or how he made you. We live in a day in which an entire generation is quarreling with their maker about how they're made. The potter makes them a cup and they want to be a bowl. He makes them a man and they want to be a woman. They're quarreling with the maker. But even more commonly amongst human beings is resentment about how we are made. How many teens either openly or in their hearts resent their parents for traits they've inherited from them. They resent their father or their mother for giving them a body shape other than the body shape they covet, giving them a nose which is different than the nose they covet, making them too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny, not athletic enough, whatever the case may be. They resent their parents. But that sort of resentment is not only dishonoring to parents, it's dishonoring to God because he made you in his own image and likeness for a specific purpose. I like to remind young people, you know, sometimes you'll kind of, you know, meet with a kid or a teen, you know, and they'll be like, I'm ugly and stupid. And I'm like, well, you came from your parents, so is that what you think of them? Right? A child can't insult themselves without insulting their parents because they're made in their parents' image and likeness. When a teen says, I'm so ugly, he might as well just march right into the other room and say that to his mother or to his father. And ultimately, he's saying that not just to his mom and dad, but to God, to the potter, the one who shaped the clay. Don't quarrel with your maker. It's pointless for a cup to argue with the potter that he should have been made a bowl. It's wrong and pointless and wicked for a child to resent her parents and God for the way that she has been made. So here's the practical application. If you don't like something about yourself, don't dishonor your parents and quarrel with your creator about it. There's an old saying, and it, it's true as far as it goes. The old saying is, you were made by God, and God don't make no junk. Don't accuse the potter of making junk because he made you in his own image and likeness. Stop accusing God of messing up. He made you exactly as you need to be to fulfill the good purpose he has for you. You know, it's like an earthenware vessel, right? The potter is making it, and he's making it a certain size because it has a certain purpose. You know, you want to be taller. You're a short cup. You want to be a tall cup. Well, God has a purpose for the short cup. Someone was reminding me after the first service of Gladys Elward, a missionary lady who was, you know, 
considered not to be beautiful and she was really tiny and so in her society she was kind of dishonored the Lord then sent her to another society where her size and her appearance was the standard of beauty and she was able to fit in and do so much God made you short or tall wide brimmed or narrow brimmed all for a purpose the sooner you accept the way you were made by God the sooner you can serve him with contentment and with joy growing up I was called little Laird little Laird why was I called little Laird because I have an older brother who's two years older than me but uh, you know he was growing a full beard by the time he was 13 if I put both of my wrists together that's the diameter of one of his he was, uh, he was a crushing fullback and linebacker in football. I was small, slow, and uh, rather untalented athletically. And as a lot of boys do, I, I, I would wonder why, you know, you know, he got all the good genes, right? And I, you know, got what I thought was the leftovers. You know, we all tend to quarrel with our maker about things that we can't change, that are not ours to decide. So my question for you is, have you accepted God's sovereignty in your life? The key to overcoming things that you don't like about yourself is to stop being so arrogant. You're like, wait a minute. The kid who says, I'm ugly, I'm, I'm too short, I'm too fat, I'm too this. Are they being arrogant? Yes, because they think they deserve to be something or someone other than who they are and who they've made to be. And they have such hubris, such arrogance that they're saying in their hearts to God, you messed up. If I had been the potter, I would have made me better than you, almighty God, made me. That's arrogance. That's arrogance cloaked in self-insulting. The key to overcoming things you don't like about yourself is to stop being so arrogant that you're willing to judge and criticize God for how he made you. How arrogant is it for the clay to say to the potter, you don't know what you're doing. You need to humble yourself and not only accept God's sovereignty, but embrace it. You know, a wonderful example of this is Johnny Erickson Tata. She was paralyzed in a diving accident and she spent months quarreling with her maker, resenting God. But eventually she accepted God's sovereignty, not only accepted it, but embraced God's providential will for her life. And as a result, it hasn't been easy, but she has lived a life of contentment and joy and fruitful service to the king. That can be your story too, no matter what you're facing. My question for you is, what part of God's sovereign providence are you struggling to accept? My guess is that it's something you can't change anyway. And so you have a choice. Live your life in fruitless pointless, unproductive, quarreling with God or accept, embrace the way and the purpose for which you were made. The path to joy and contentment begins with humbling yourself and accepting God's sovereign will for your life. Quarreling with God about it is as pointless as a pot arguing with the potter. You know, it's not gonna change anything. It's just going to make you miserable, so accept it. Chapter 45, verse 11 gives a command, actually. Thus says Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. You're the work of God's hands. Commit yourself to him. He made you, so commit yourself to him and let him then use you. He made the handle on your particular picture a certain way for a certain purpose. He has something for you to do. Embrace it. Commit to him the work of his hands. So dear friend, have you humbly accepted God's sovereignty and entrusted yourself to him or are you still bogged down in pointlessly quarreling with your maker? Humble yourself. Accept. Embrace. And then serve the Lord with contentment and joy. He knew what he was doing when he made you. Third, and very briefly, we should respond to God's sovereignty by trusting in him alone for salvation. 
Look at the great evangelistic invitation given at the end of chapter 45. We'll begin in verse 17 and read through the end of the chapter. Israel has been saved by Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In Yahweh, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. In verse 17, we're told that God's salvation is an everlasting salvation and that those who are saved will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. That's the great inheritance of the believer. Never put to shame, never humiliated to all eternity. Our sin is what brings shame and so it is very good news to know that when God saves us he removes the guilt of sin and therefore it's shame forever we in our western culture have a a lesser sense of this but in what are called honor shame cultures which are many of the cultures of the world are honor shame cultures they very viscerally feel this concept of shame What good news it is that when God saves, he says to those he saves, you will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. That's a message to take to Asia in the shame and honor cultures there. That's the message to take to the person weighed down by sin and shame wherever they live west or east, north or south. In verse 18 then we're reminded that God created this world with a purpose. He's gonna sovereignly fulfill that purpose. Nothing can thwart his plan. And then verse 19 reminds us that God has not kept us in the dark or hidden truth from us. He says, I, he says in, in verse 19, I've not spoken in secret in some dark land Right at the beginning I said, look, I get the dilemma of the unbeliever. How can you know what the right way is? How can you know what the truth is? Well, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the evidence for it is not hidden. It is right in front of you. Romans 1 says that the creation declares the glory of God. And God has revealed himself to us. We need to accept it. And then in verses 20 through 22, there's that great evangelistic invitation, concluding in verse 22, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, all the peoples, every tribe, tongue, and nation, let them all, God says, turn to me and be saved. What a wonderful invitation. My question is to you is, have you responded to that invitation? Have you turned to God and been saved. God has graciously given to sinners the opportunity to bow the knee to him and to be saved before the day of judgment. But make no mistake about it, as verse 23 says, every knee will eventually bow. 
So every knee will bow, and you will make the choice either to bow the knee now in repentance and faith or to bow the knee at the day of judgment as the verdict of eternal condemnation is read over you. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Question is, will you bow the knee now and be saved or will you bow the knee at the judgment as you are condemned to hell? God invites you, he says, turn to me and be saved. He is God he is the Savior, and there is no other. By the way, you may have recognized that Isaiah 45, verse 23 is quoted in the, in the New Testament. In Isaiah 45, verse 23, Yahweh, God, is speaking, and he says, to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. In Philippians chapter two, the apostle Paul writes that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you ever doubt that the scripture teaches the deity of Christ, doubt no longer. The quotation of Yahweh from Isaiah 45 verse 23 is directly applied to Jesus Christ. Yahweh says, every knee will bow to me and Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus for he is God. Have you turned to God to be saved? Have you, as Philippians 2 says, confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that every heart will respond to the reality of your absolute sovereignty by turning to you and being saved. Pray that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and I pray that they will do so now during the day of salvation rather than doing so at the day of judgment when it will be too late so Lord for the unconverted among us save them today I pray and Lord may we be diligent to take this good news Lord to the ends of the world as Isaiah says the message, that invitation, that glorious invitation, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. May that be our mission. May that be our testimony. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand.